Hello everyone, and welcome back to another episode of Changing the Climate, a show where we talk about the changing world around us and how we can make it better. Brought to you by Climate Change Realty. The only real estate brokerage that donates 50% of its net commissions to 501c3 nonprofit organizations dedicated to fighting climate change. Carlos, good to see you, man. Appreciate you coming on the show. It really means the world to me. I appreciate being here, Ethan. Yeah, well, we're excited to have you, and we always love to get it started with a little bit of background, who you are, how you got to be doing what you're doing. For sure. So just for the audience, my full name is Carlos Ochoa, and that is uh, if you want to practice your uh, Spanish pronunciation. But, um, you know, I've, uh, I'm here working with Azul, which translates to blue in Spanish, and we are a marine conservation organization um, working with uh, Latinos in the Latino community um, and other grassroots organizations on conserving marine resources like the ocean and the coasts. And so very happy to be here and uh, have a great discussion on environmental issues and, and why they're really important to not only the Latino community, but also to the general public as well. Yeah, no, beyond a doubt, man. Um, yeah, so I've been reading Paul Hawkins' most recent book, Regeneration, and it's like crazy how large an impact the ocean has on the climate system. Is there like, is that is the reason you got into like ocean conservation because of like maximal impact or is it something that you were just passionate about generally? So to come 100% clean, you know, I was not someone who worked on any ocean related issues for most of my professional career. Um, and the best way to describe how I transitioned into ocean related work is for a period of time, I think it was about a year and a half, two years ago, I was working for a transportation and infrastructure lobbying firm. And as a part of the portfolio that I was working on, uh, there was something called transit equity. And I'm sure that uh, for some people who are listening in, you know, equity is, is a hot topic that's um, being talked about frequently and not just transit or the environment, but in all sorts of different ways. Um, and basically, just to give a bit of a context of what I meant by transit equity, uh, you know, there's a lot of cities out there where significant numbers of communities of color and people of color are heavily dependent on public transit to get to and from their jobs or to get to school or to get um, to wherever they need to go, right? And, you know, you and I are not the first person, you know, we're not the first per people to, to say that, uh, you know, a lot of public transit systems around the country and in major cities aren't necessarily that reliable. Um, and so because of that, there's a conversation about how does um, transit and its huge, huge um, dependence for communities of color and equity, how that all impacts um, communities. And so that's what got me interested into this position that I'm at right now, which is in ocean conservation, which we are very much so talking about equity, but in a very different way. And what I mean by that is we're talking about equity in regards to access to nature. So a lot of communities are not necessarily close to either parks or areas outside where it can be really important for your mental and physical health. Um, but to get back to your initial point, uh, the ocean is incredibly important for the planet and for the environment. Um, just, you know, one big piece of, uh, of information that I think surprises most people is that the majority of the air that we breathe comes from the ocean. Over 50% of the oxygen that we breathe comes from the ocean. Um, and some estimates put it up to 80%. So the ocean plays a very critical role in the health of the environment, but also 
the health of people around the world. Mm-hmm. So like, where are you from? Where did you go to school? How did you get into like the intersectionality of all these different issues? Yeah, so I went to school at American University in Washington, D.C. And after I graduated, I stayed in D.C. after that. So I've been in D.C. now for over seven years, going on to my eighth. And I did temporarily uh, work in Colorado and I worked in Arizona on the presidential campaign. Um, Not in Colorado, but in Arizona, I worked on the presidential campaign for Joe Biden, um, uh, Senator Mark Kelly, and then also for state level um, representatives and senators. So uh, that was for the brief, a brief period of time. But then I came back to D.C. to continue um, uh, working on the issues that I'm now working on. Have you always been interested in like politics, trying to make big moves in the world? Where do you think it came from? Always, man. Uh, you know, as a, as a kid, uh, I am not ashamed to say this, but when I was younger, I wanted to be president of the United States. And I, I think it. that I think that the odds of anyone becoming the, the president are very, very slim. But, um, you know, my my real passion for, for politics, I think, came from two different sources. And the first one is that I come from a family of Mexican immigrants. And so seeing my family work when I was younger and the difficult working conditions that they had, um, you know, they worked in the construction industry in Phoenix, Arizona, of all places. And, you know, that's not the easiest thing to do. If it's 115 degrees Fahrenheit outside and you have to work and and build homes and lay concrete, that's a very difficult job to do. Uh, And, you know, for a lot of immigrants, you know, that's, 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 uh, that's where they, that's where they can go and get a job. And I'm not saying that there aren't other um, industries where they can get jobs. That is the word. The majority of my family um, ended up working when they immigrated to this country. And so seeing them, you know, work hard for a better standard of living really motivated me to want to pursue my dreams and work hard to, to make a difference in the community. Um, And then I think the second um, source of inspiration for, uh, getting interested in politics is because, you know, whether we like it or not, government at the local, state, and federal level does have a massive impact on your standard of living. And to deny that reality is really naive. And, and I think that to, to, to be invested in your standard of living and improving the standard of living of your family, of your community, or of the country, or of the planet, you have to be involved in government. You have to be involved in what's going on. And I think that's the second source of why I'm, I'm very interested in this. It's not just a, it's not just a, a passion for, for making big moves. It's a, it's a passion for really making a difference. Yeah. Well, you say it's a slim chance, man, but I can, I, you have like the presidential tone in your voice. I don't know if your microphone's really good or if you've always just spoken like this, but I could already see it, man. Um, what, what I would want to ask a lot, of, a lot of people, well, thanks for the credit. But a lot of people tell me I talk too loud, but so maybe it could work. I don't know. We'll, we'll, we'll find it. We'll find out. I'm, I'm, I'm catching the vibes, man. I think, you know, as long as you continue trying for something, you can eventually get it. I mean, look at our current president. I mean, he lost what, like, eight elections before he finally became president. Uh, yeah, my I favorite he, president. Yeah. I think he ran three times. Uh, I think maybe he got it right on the third times. I know he ran in 2007 against uh, former president Obama. And then I think he ran in 2000. Uh-huh. Um, so yeah, I mean, you know, who, who knows, but anyways, to get back to your point. Yeah, no, my favorite president is, is Lincoln. And there's this like chart of like all the failures that he has until he becomes president. And he's like one of the most pivotal presidents uh, in American history. In American history, right. 
Yeah. Yeah. Well, what I, so what I'll tell you, this is I'm a business guy. I went to business school and I, including many people, I would say are disenchanted with politics. A lot of people don't vote. Don't, um, I personally, you know, I want to help and, you know, create a positive impact, but I don't want too much to do with politics because I think it's pretty like gross as well. So I guess I wanted to ask you, why do you think so, so many people are disenchanted with politics? What are like the main reasons, like in your mind? Mm. There's a lot of ways you can answer that question, but I'll try to answer every piece of it uh, without going too deep. The first I think is nowadays, and this is just, you know, uh, a reverberation of the echo chamber. And that is that polarization and this country is really divided. Uh, and I think that that is playing a huge role in us accomplishing things. And as much as some people want to, you know, stand firm for their values and what they believe in and what, the policies they uh, think should pass. Compromise is an essential part of government, whether that is on the local, state, or federal level. And, you know, to, you know, Congress, I think, has like something like a 9% approval rating. So it doesn't matter who has control of Congress. It, at the end of the day, people feel like they're not getting things done. And that's certainly playing a role into people's apathy. Um, I think the other thing, too, is a lot of people feel like voting doesn't matter and that voting again doesn't impact their standard of living. How does voting make my life if I'm dependent on a, on a check week by week and that is what gets me by? How is voting going to make my life better? And I think that's an essential question that a lot of people um, are trying to help answer. Um, I think that's ridiculous. It totally makes a difference. It absolutely I, does. Yeah, it absolutely does. But you know, for people like, like you and me, we, we feel and we know and we've done the research, but there's a lot of communities out there and a lot of people who are not convinced. And I think that that is just a natural element of, you know, trying to convince people to vote. Uh, you know, some people will become skeptical. Some people will always be skeptical. But at the end of the day, there's always someone who you can convince. Um, you know, when I worked on the presidential campaign in Arizona for the 2020 campaign cycle, that was a dream come true. Even though I worked for the campaign for a pretty short period of time, um, I had always envisioned working on a campaign and working to eventually flip Arizona blue. That was always something that I wanted to see growing up because I, I'm from Phoenix, Arizona originally. And the opportunity to flip Arizona blue and convince a lot of members of my family, again, Latinos, that voting for certain candidates could make a real difference in their lives that was something that I felt like I could do. And, uh, you know, I, I not only worked on the campaign to register people who we were working with, but also was talking diligently with family members to convince them that they needed to vote and that this was an important time to vote. Um, and don't get me wrong, immigration is not the only thing that Latinos care about. Absolutely not. Um, you'd be surprised. Latinos really care about the environment. Um, overwhelmingly, survey after survey, um, Latinos care significantly about environmental conservation more than most other demographics. And so this is an issue that is not only unique to my community, but it's also uh, an opportunity to really engage a community that I feel that many around me in this, in this field uh, feel are not being engaged enough uh, because there's a huge opportunity to get a lot of people involved in the fight against climate change. Yeah. And let's talk about what you're doing and what your organization is doing. Forgive me for my uh, white, uh, whatever, white New York pronunciation. It's, is it Azul? Azul? Uh, Azul. 
Azul. Okay. Yeah, there um, you go. That's perfect. Azul. And show me, show me the T-shirt that you're wearing. Let's see here if you can see it. There we nice. go. So there's our logo right there. I don't know if you can see if it's flipped on your side. I know that on my end, it's um, it's the opposite. But no, um, I, it looks it looks clear on on the camera. And so so what is Azul? So Azul is a, an environmental organization that is working with the Latino community and other grassroots organizations to conserve marine resources like the ocean and the coast. Um, and by conserve marine resources, I don't mean just to, uh, you know, keep a beach clean or to keep the ocean clean. There's so much more to it than just that. Um, and a big part of it is increasing equitable access to nature, specifically the coasts and ocean areas. So what, what exactly does that mean? Like equitable access to nature, meaning like there's not private beaches or, or what would that exactly entail? That's a, that's a great transition to what I was going to say. So for example, our organization was founded in California and in California, all beaches are public. It is illegal to have a private section of the beach and it's illegal to block access to the beach. So for instance, there was a story and, you know, I, I don't remember the exact details, but I know that there was a story um, recently about somebody who owned a track of land either in Malibu or some other location um, in California that had, you know, right on the beach where they were blocking a pathway that the public can take to get to the beach, right? And that they had a sign on there that said, you know, private beach, don't cross through, something like that. Um, and so the California Coastal Commission, which uh, has some enforcement authority over access to the beach, uh, can basically fine individuals or, you know, um, uh, work with individuals to prevent that from happening. Because at the end of the day, we want people to access the beach because that's a public resource. You know, if you go to a, a forest or if you go to a, a lake or a river, you know, uh, the, the benefits of being in nature um, are so, so important to your health and to your mental health that our organization firmly believes that uh, to have any access to, to nature be completely private um, is problematic. And it's not that we're anti-private private property. We're just saying that, you know, certain, um, certain areas outside should be publicly accessible to communities and especially accessible to communities of color who right now don't have access to nature. Let me give you some information by what I mean by that and how big of a problem inequitable access to nature is. So there was a study that was recently done and it was in, uh, it was in collaboration with the Center for American Progress and uh, I, I think uh, the Hispanic Access Foundation, but I, I don't remember exactly who it was, but basically a, a collaborative study that found that um, black indigenous and people of color communities are three times more likely than white communities to live in nature deprived communities. Let that sink in for a little bit. So if you are someone who lives in a community that is predominantly Black, Indigenous, Latino, your community is three times more likely to be in an area where there is no access to nature for it be a park, let's say a green space, or let's say it's not close to a state park or it's not close to the beach. Um, and that's problematic because you are denying these large groups of people the ability to, uh, you know, get the therapeutic benefits of being outside and, you know, have the, the benefit of, of uh, for example, with COVID-19, 
you know, you're cooped up indoors all the time. It could be really helpful to go to a park and get that, sure. get that relief. And, uh, and that's really important. Yeah. Um, is that because of like pricing of like, it's less expensive to live in nature deprived areas? Any idea why that is the case? I think it has a lot more to do with the history of how communities end up, ended up getting boxed in with each other and, uh, and how redlining played a huge role in communities being overwhelmingly black or overwhelmingly Latino or overwhelmingly minority of some other kind. Um, and those communities having a significant lack of investment for let's say public parks or a lack of infrastructure um, and transit to get them to and from those green spaces. Like I said, there's already so few green spaces available in these um, already economically deprived communities that it's difficult for them to invest in those parks. It's difficult for them to have enough funding to, to have that green space there um, or to get their community members to and from different places that offer that therapeutic relief. Like I said, um, I think that pricing you know, certainly is a, is a factor in it now, but if you go back in time and see why those communities ended up being the way they are, it's because a lot of times those communities were um, intentionally put there and segregated. And I think that that's a, a much deeper question or a much deeper answer to why the, the situation is what it is right now. Yeah, I definitely hear that. I want to back up a little bit to uh, the idea of connecting access to nature with conservation, because yeah. it seems kind of counterintuitive to me that some that uh, a natural space being available to more people would be pro conservation, which was kind of what you were describing, mm -hmm. because it seems to me if everyone can access a place, they just throw their trash everywhere and get their skin oils all over the place and dirty it up. Mm -hmm. So how how is that like? related to conservation is increasing access to, you know, to those places? Of course. And that's a good question. Um, and to clarify, conservation and equitable access to nature, those are not mutually exclusive. And, and more importantly, is that you can achieve both in a way that is, that is beneficial to both the environment and to community. And so what I mean by that is, for instance, um, if you have a section of Los Angeles for instance, that is, you know, 70% or 80% um, people of color, and there is a significant lack of uh, access to parks, and also a lack of access um, to the beach, then it makes sense to prioritize equitable access to nature, but also to conserve areas that are ecologically important, but also uh, important to the health of communities. You know, um, I'm, you know, you're in Colorado, right? Of course. Okay. So you obviously know that the front range, the mountains, you know, that's a, it's a huge recreational paradise for a lot of people. And just because you have uh, people from Denver or from Boulder or from Longmont, you know, go to the mountains, that doesn't mean that uh, the places that they go visit or they go hike or camp, that doesn't mean that those places aren't protected. That doesn't mean that they're not conserved. In fact, uh, there's a lot more that you can gain from protecting an area and putting resources towards its protection in addition to opening it up to, to people to uh, enjoy. Yeah, and I guess I, I appreciate that. And I guess that uh, the alternative being if it was private, that someone could do whatever they want with it and then develop the heck out of it and then, you, and then suck up all the resources. Is that kind of like the idea? Right. Think of it like this. You know, nature is a resource. And 
Uh, not everyone, uh, there are certain public resources and public goods that it's problematic for them to be completely privately owned. For, for instance, uh, water is a public resource and how water is distributed is something that is usually managed by a public utility or a public agency. Um, and so in the same way, we think that certain areas that are important for their ecological contributions um, and are important to uh, you know, fighting climate change because they sequester carbon from the atmosphere, um, there's, still, there's still a priority to make sure that those areas are accessible to people. Because again, the benefits of being in nature are really important to communities. Um, and I don't want people to get confused that, you know, we only, Asul, we only care about access to the ocean and the coast and that there's no need at all to be focused on access to mountains or, or you know, inland rivers or deserts. You know, those areas still have ecological importance and those areas are still critical to a lot of communities um, inside the country. But it's good we, to have a focus. Right. But we are very much so focused on the ocean and the coasts. Um, because 40% of all people in the U.S. live in coastal areas. And think about that, 40%. Um, and the majority of Latinos in the United States live in some major coastal states, California, Texas, Florida, New Jersey, New York, Rhode Island even has a significant number of Latinos who live there. And so if you think about uh, you know, the beach as a public resource that provides these therapeutic benefits to communities, we want to make sure that communities that have been historically denied access to those public resources and those public goods, nature, the beach, the coasts, the ocean, that they also have access to those areas. I love it, man. Thank you for clarifying. Fantastic response. Uh, any other policies that you think are really good for supporting ocean conservation specifically that Asul is in support of? Absolutely. So my time is primarily spent on something called 30 by 30 which is conserving 30% of the nation's land and ocean by the year 2030. This is something that originally started in California. Um, Assembly member Ash Kalra had sponsored a bill uh, to basically make 30 by 30 a reality in California. And Azul was heavily involved in making sure that equitable access to nature and to conserved areas as a part of 30 by 30 um, was incorporated together. And that really is what set off this, this just uh, opened the floodgates, uh, for lack of a better term, to uh, making sure that conservation and, uh, and conservation policy is intertwined with equitable access to those areas, to those areas that are conserved. Um, unfortunately, the bill didn't pass in the California State Assembly. It died in committee. But fortunately, um, Governor Newsom signed an executive order in late 2020 that basically made it a goal for the state of California to accomplish 30 by 30. And in addition to that, focus on equitable access to nature for communities of color. And right now, California is undergoing a, uh, a process where they're finalizing the details of the stakeholder engagement that they've done to make sure that 30 by 30 is um, inclusive of that focus on equitable access, but also on how to properly conserve um, the best areas. And we'll see how that plays out. You know, that's still going through that process right now. Um, fortunately, though, even uh, when that passed in late 2020, or was signed rather by Governor Newsom, um, in early of 
2021, this year, President Biden signed an executive order to make 30 by 30 a national goal as well. Let's go. Right? Awesome. Um, and so just to give a bit of information on where that process is, uh, the Department of the Interior, in addition to some other federal agencies, are tasked with the responsibility of uh, not only making uh, a plan for how to accomplish 30 by 30 on the federal level, but also with the details of how to engage stakeholders um, on this issue. And not too long ago, the Department of the Interior released a report called Conserving and Restoring America the Beautiful that laid out a set of principles on how they were going to achieve 30 by 30. And as a part of those principles, I believe there are eight of them. Um, one of them is a commitment to equitable access to nature, which is a huge, huge commitment. And that's something that we really care about and other organizations that are also focused in this space really care about. Um, right now, uh, even though that that report has come out and the, the federal government is taking a um, uh, uh, an approach to 30 by 30 that is a lot more focused on um, supporting locally driven conservation efforts to accomplish 30 by 30. Um, there are a lot of states and even local governments that are taking on 30 by 30 on their own. And that all is going to be helpful in the national push to achieve 30 by 30. Yeah. And this is, if I'm not mistaken, this is where you spend most of your time as well, right? This is, it is, the... it is because again, you know, if the goal is to conserve 30% of land and ocean, ocean being where we focus on, um, and a part of that plan is to focus on equitable access to those conserved areas. We are spending most of our time, specifically me, on making sure that those conserved areas incorporate elements and commitments to equitable access to nature. And where do like the Latinx voices come into this? Like, how can they support these initiatives? So we are very much so focused on making sure that areas that are proposed as conserved areas as a part of 30 by 30 are near or in communities of color, especially Latino communities. And so do you see how this all now is, is becoming very intertwined? You know, 40% of the, of the population lives on the, on the coast and the majority of Latinos live in coastal states. And 30% of the ocean is a goal that we're trying to achieve. And right now we are at 26%. So there's still 4% left to go. But what we at Azul are advocating for is that that remaining 4% of the ocean that needs to be conserved are highly protected and that are near and accessible to Latino communities and wait, other wait, communities it, of color. In the whole U.S., we're already at 26% for like ocean that we have accessibility to? Um, we are at 26% in terms of ocean and water areas. Water, I mean the Great Lakes, because they, there are some areas in the Great Lakes that are currently protected, um, and that's counted. Um, but the majority of it is in ocean areas. And so we're at 26%, but there's a lot of, you know, there's a lot of debate about whether that 26% is sufficiently protected. Um, mm. you know, there are, there's something called the Marine Protected Network. Are you familiar with it? No. So the Marine Protected Network is a network of Marine Protected areas. And those areas are basically protected for, a variety of reasons. It can be recreational, it can be ecological, it can be cultural, whatever it may be. Um, but not every area is protected in the same way. 
And so, for example, you can have an area of the ocean or the Great Lakes that is considered a marine protected area, but you can still drill oil and still, and still drill gas in those areas. So how, how is that a marine protected area? Um, and for us, that's, a, that's an obvious, that's an, it's, it's, a, it's a no-brainer that a marine protected area should not have um, extractive activities permissible on the area. For sure. I can't right? believe so, that's even the case. Right. So there's, you know, different categories of how you can protect an area and it still be classified as a, as an MPA, a marine protected area. Um, and so what we at Asul strongly advocate for is that marine protected areas are fully or highly protected, meaning that they have the highest levels of restrictions. And we care about putting those heavy restrictions because again, um, the, the point of conservation is to either maintain the area for its ecological contribution and for its aesthetic beauty, but also to make sure that if we have people go to those areas, that they're not seeing oil rigs, that they're not seeing gas drilling, and that they're not seeing the potential for an oil disaster, like we saw off the coasts of Huntington Beach recently in California. Yeah. Um, and uh, so it's important that we, that we push for that high, highly protected, fully protected, marine protected area um, so that they have the most benefit for the environment and that they have the most benefit for people who are accessing those areas. Yeah. I mean, it would be great if we had like a standardized, a set of uh, whatever qualifications for marine protected areas and that they all fit into that. And if, and that includes oil drilling, that is mind blowing because that like kills so much wildlife when they have spills, like exactly what you just mentioned. What was that like a month ago now? Um, it, yeah, I think it was even sooner than that. I think it was within the last month. And, yeah. you know, there's tons of reports out there of, of animals basically washing up ashore dead, covered of in course. oil. And so, you know, for a lot of people, they think, well, again, how does this impact my standard of living? And we go back to the argument of being in nature is important to your health because it offers that therapeutic benefit of getting away from the city of getting away from pollution, of getting away from cars, of getting away from the hustle and bustle of life. When you're in a beautiful area, whether it be the beach, the ocean, a lake, a park, a mountain, a forest, you're getting really substantial therapeutic benefits. And, uh, and, to, and to say that you know, voting doesn't matter and that conserving um, the ocean and, and our, our natural resources isn't important to your health, man, we got a lot of work to do. For sure. Uh, speaking of a lot of work to do, what else are you guys working on at Azul? So a lot of the other work that we're focused on is uh, in California, specifically, some of my colleagues are focused on desalination. And there's a desalination um, plant that is going on um, in the Huntington Beach area. And that would be removing salt from ocean water to create potable water would be the correct. Word, right? Correct. Yep. Um, and we are against uh, that, that plant um, near Huntington Beach for the desalination. And it's, uh, it's currently, um, currently it's, full uh, of oil. <laughs> well, probably, right. I mean, probably, <laughs> I mean, you know, right now, you know, uh, not in, in just a few days, um, you know, the, the COP26 conference in Glasgow is uh, going to start. And, uh, you know, a part of that summit is to basically address the, as many scientists put it in very recent um, climate reports, a code red for humanity um, that the continued burning of fossil fuels is putting humanity in danger 
and is we're, we're getting really close to that tipping point of no return. And desalination is often marketed as a solution to the lack of water. And unfortunately, a lot of desalination is reliant on fossil fuels to clean that water. And I know that there are definitely projects out there that are trying to say that, uh, you know, desalination plants can still be effective even with the use of renewable energy. But the problem with desalination plants also runs deeper to how it affects communities of color. Specifically, um, the brine that is released when you are cleaning out the substantial amount of salt, in addition to all the other things in ocean water, when that brine is released back into the ocean, it's very, very harmful to the environment. And a lot of times uh, you can even um, have these storage tanks that are uh, holding all of the chemicals or the uh, materials needed to clean for the, for the process of cleaning out this water. And those storage tanks are extremely hazardous. And oftentimes they are located in or near communities of color. Um, and we find that to be problematic because those are considered frontline communities. Frontline communities are communities that are really close to an area that is either polluting a significant amount of emissions or toxins into the air. And those communities that are right next to that area are, are taking the biggest hit from those emissions or from those pollutants and those toxins. And in the same way, a community that is right next to a storage facility that has a huge amount of hazardous material, that is considered also a frontline community and is considered at risk of a potential spill of those hazards and is going to hit them first. And we don't think that that's just, we don't think that that's fair. And we don't think that desalination plants are a solution to how we manage and use water. If anything, we have a water management problem, not a water scarcity problem. Okay. So I'm assuming the reason I obviously have said before, I don't know much about California, but the reason that these plants exist is because the need for water is getting, it's getting to be a, a crisis in California. So what's like the alternative then if you don't I do think, the desalination? So we don't, we're not saying that there isn't a need for long-term planning for a lack of water. We're not saying that. What we're saying is that the amount of water that is used in a lot of areas in California, how it is managed is so inefficient and so ineffective that we wouldn't be in a crisis of water if we were to just better manage our water use. I love that response. Right. And then on top of that, we also say that it's a huge hazard and a huge risk to frontline communities and communities of color because they are the ones that are going to have to deal with a huge facility that has these storage tanks that are posing a huge risk to their health if something were to happen to them. Right. Fair enough. Um, you know, think back to, th you know, think back to um, the, the BP oil spill that happened in uh, the early 2010s. You know, when that spill happened, uh, you had an enormous amount of oil that went all over the Gulf of Mexico coast. And not only did it destroy um, the environment, not only did it destroy the livelihoods of a lot of fishermen who rely on fishing for their, you know, for their business, but it also affected a lot of communities that were, um, you know, 
right on the coast or right in areas that, you know, they don't have the sufficient protection um, to make sure that the oil doesn't affect their community or get into waterways or get into water sources. Um, so if you think about it the same way, you know, an oil spill causing a huge harm to communities, you know, we say the same thing about uh, a desalination plant being placed near a community where they don't have sufficient enough protection from something happening. It's hard to keep track of this crazy world, man. I'm glad, I'm glad people like you are out there really passionate, working hard to protect uh, the people who really need it the most, man. So cheers to that. Uh, any other like ocean conservation groups that you think are doing some essential work beyond your own? I think there's so many to name. It, it would be hard to even give a list, but I definitely want to give a shout out to a lot of other Latinx led organizations and organizations led by um, people of color. And the reason why I'm giving that special shout out is because uh, the environmental conservation movement for many, many decades has been a movement that has been unjust and frankly racist in a lot of ways. Um, you know, if you look at the biggest environmental organizations in the country, they're all predominantly white led organizations. And I know that for a lot of people who might be hearing this podcast interview, they might think, oh my goodness, here we go again with race. Here we go again with, with, uh, with, with, with this whole topic about race. But to, to deny race is a huge factor in how our society is, is set up in this country, is to deny the history of this country and how it's affected millions of people and the outcomes and the standard of living of a lot of people. Why is it that in city after city after city, there are very clearly neighborhoods that are predominantly black, neighborhoods that are predominantly Latino, and those neighborhoods having significant issues with, let's say, sufficient infrastructure or clean enough drinking water. Think about Flint, Michigan, um, or think about, uh, you know, communities where, uh, like I said, they are three times more likely to live in a nature-deprived area. Is that, is that all just a coincidence? It's not. It's not a coincidence. And so uh, we think that Latinx and um, other organizations led by people of color are bringing a spotlight to issues that have been issues for decades, if not hundreds of years. Um, and so this is why I think that any organization that is focused on improving the standard of living for communities of color and are trying to bring light to uh, environmental injustices are communities that I am, am firmly uh, in support of and, and very much so think that they're doing great work. Yeah, I mean, I couldn't agree more with with what you just said in in many ways, but what what I will say is isn't most of the US white, so wouldn't that explain a lot of the reasons why a lot of organizations are led by white people? Isn't it 70% of of Americans aren't they white? Am I wrong? Is that is I understand that there's wealth inequality and there's systematic racism, there's mm -hmm. environmental racism. All these things exist and are true and are problems. And mm -hmm. things as years go on, uh, cultures will mix. And I, I hope that these uh, these food deserts and horrible communities that exist do begin to dissipate. It's very complex. I try to avoid politics on this show uh, as much as I can, but it's hard to uh, avoid it because it's so. Of course, it's, so it's our important. life, right? Yeah, I, I just think that. There, it's like most people are white. So is that not why like most positions are filled by white people? People might get I, mad at me for saying that, but this is just a question. No, 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 no. Don't be afraid to answer, to ask any question, Ethan. And I think that, you know, I, I'm someone who I feel like I 
I pride myself in, in, in being able to have a, a difficult conversation with someone that I don't agree with. And I'm not saying that I don't agree with you. I'm just saying sure. that, you know, you don't learn if you don't have those conversations with people who you might uh, think differently with. Um, and so to answer that question, uh, I, I think that that is a, uh, first of all, I think it's a, it's a bit of a cop-out answer, you know, well, the population of the U S is majority white. So doesn't that then justify why the majority of environmental organizations are not justify, but explain, explain. Correct. I think that's a very good, um, a very good, a very good note. Um, my answer to that is this, um, John Muir, who was considered the father of the environmental conservation movement in the United States is very has, has a very clear record of being um, uh, not only racist, but also uh, openly anti-Indigenous. Uh, Is he um, the Sierra Club guy? I believe so, right? Yeah. Um, and, you know, to when a movement or an organization or something is headed by someone whose views are so anti uh, a, a particular group of people, that influences how the movement gr- then grows. Absolutely. And so, you know, to suggest that the environmental conservation movement in the U.S. hasn't had a significant history of racism is wrong. First of all, it's just factually wrong uh, because one, I'm just giving the example of John Muir. Um, yeah. And I, I don't know if I'm pronouncing his last name correctly or not. Uh, for anyone out there who might comment or something and say he's saying it wrong. They know um, who it is. We're talking yeah. about that guy, whoever yeah. the guy was. Whoever that guy was, right? <laughs> um, um, but also more importantly too, is uh, if you look at how a lot of funding is distributed to environmental conservation organizations, the vast, and I mean the overwhelming majority of money goes to organizations that are headed by white individuals. A tiny, tiny fraction of money that is given out to environmental organizations is given to Latinx led organizations. Now, is that also in line with what you said about, well, doesn't that also explain why most environmental organizations are led by white individuals just because of the population and how it's set up? Well, I think that that's, again, it's, it's an easy answer to explain something that has been very clearly documented in history as contributing to uh, the environmental conservation movement being not inclusive of people of color. And even to this day, um, when there are Latinx and other organizations led by people of color, they still don't get enough funding um, to account for, let's just say, the amount of people in this country who are people of color. So if we want to, if we want to turn the argument around and flip it on its head, why isn't uh, you know, 30 or 40% of all environmental conservation funding going to organizations led by people of color because 30 and 40% of the population are people of color? It's not, and, and that's not, it's not the way it is right now. So I think that it, you can flip it on its head and say, look, um, that's not a good enough reason to say that this is the way it is and that there's no reason to change it. Um, if we want to talk about fairness, then there should be more money going to um, organizations like ours. And, and that's, uh, and that's, I'm not ashamed of making that, of making that argument. That was awesome, man. I'm, I wasn't ashamed to hear it. it was, that was, that was great. Um, yeah, I love the way you turn it around. 
Um, I also didn't, I, whatever it, people, people get the point, Carlos, it's been great, man. This is, this has been pretty awesome. Um, I really, uh, you're just so articulate. I love, I love the way you explain things. Um, tell me about like your vision of where, where you want to see this country in 20 years. We've obviously gotten into it pretty deep in this conversation, but I want to hear from your own words when I give you the prompt. Of course. And I, I just, I just want to be very, I, I want to be very honest and vulnerable with this question because you and I, we're in the same generation. Um, and I don't know if you have brothers or sisters or cousins who are younger than you or know people who are younger than you, but I think that this question is a very difficult question to answer because our generation specifically and those younger than us are facing a existential crisis and a crisis that can literally determine whether or not by the time we are older, we're going to be living in a planet that is suitable to live in. And that's a difficult question to answer. And it's a difficult question to think about. Um, it's also difficult to not get frustrated at our leaders right now who are you know, negotiating um, a reconciliation bill at the federal level that either could or either could address climate change or may not, depending on what they do. So where I see this country in 20 years, I hope I hope uh, I'm a, I'm a, I'm a pessimistic optimist, if that's even a way to phrase that. Uh, but I hope that in 20 years, this country has made significant investments in addressing climate change, not only at the federal level, but also at the state and the local level, and also done its role in helping um, countries that are uh, less developed move forward in their own mission to become uh, less dependent on fossil fuels and become more dependent rather on renewable energies. And so I don't have a very specific answer. All I can say is uh, I know that, um, you know, uh, lots of climate scientists out there and the UN has made it very clear that we are not doing what we should be doing on reducing our fossil fuel emissions and our fossil fuel consumption. Um, and that we have already warmed the earth by 1.1 degrees Celsius. So we're only 0.4 degrees or we're only 0.4 degrees Celsius away from hitting that, that absolute, you know, 1.5 degrees that we, that we promised in the Paris agreement, we said we were not going to hit, we were not going to pass. Um, and unfortunately it's looking like we might uh, based on current trends, it's, it's still moving in that direction, unfortunately. So what I want to see is, significant investments in climate change. And I hope that the reconciliation bill at the federal level passes because it includes um, something like 550 billion with a B dollars in addressing climate change. Um, I hope that gets passed. And I hope that in the future, we continue to make more investments at the federal, state and local level in combating climate change. Um, and that's going to take a significant amount of convincing the public to do. It's going to take a lot of work to convince our friends and family who I, who are literally still skeptics of climate change. Um, and also to convince those who are hesitant, um, to get on board because this is not, this is not something that we can, uh, for lack of a better term, just, just, just think that it's going to go away. It's, it's not. Um, and it's going to make the lives of our children, um, and our grandchildren literally unlivable. So I, I don't, I don't see how that 
I don't, I don't see how this isn't something we can't coalesce around, but you know, it's still a challenge, but I hope in 20 years, you know, we've made significant enough investments to, to, you know, by the time you and I are, are old um, and looking back and saying, did we do enough to make this planet livable and to make this planet suitable for future generations? I hope we can look back and say, you know, we, we did do enough and, and we, and we did make those hard choices. Um, and so that's where I hope we are in 20 years. And I hope that, uh, Climate change is not something that people are debating. I hope that climate change is something that every single community in every single part of this country are actively thinking about how they can combat it. Well, I'll say this in a quarter of that time, you'll be able to run for president. So we'll we'll be able to have help from you like we have today. It's been a pleasure having you on the show. Any uh, final piece of advice for people who are really passionate, just like you and I about this kind of stuff, get some action going today. So I think there's so many things you can do. Um, you can, to make it easy, you can vote. You know, you can, if you're not registered to vote, you know, go, um, uh, go to your, your state government website uh, or your, your county website and see how you can register to vote. Um, again, your livelihood and the livelihood of your family uh, is at stake. And so at least vote so that the government knows where you stand on the issue. Um, support candidates, more importantly, who care about addressing climate change. I'm not going to tell you you should vote for just Democrats. Absolutely not. There are people out there of many different political affiliations who do take climate change seriously. And we need to stop having this. Uh, it's, it's us versus them. It's, it's, it's uh, you know, team A versus team B. No, we are all in this together. And so um, support candidates who take this seriously um, at the local, state and federal level. Um, the other thing you can do is you can also, uh, you know, um, volunteer, volunteer your time with organizations who are focused on environmental justice or focused on combating climate change. Um, you can also uh, donate to environmental organizations. Um, and uh, you can also even just have conversations with family and friends and, and, you know, pick their brain and see where they stand on the issue. Um, and if this is something that you really truly care about, um, I would encourage you to, to really find um, opportunities to volunteer, to intern, to work with um, organizations that are focused on this issue. Uh, and on the private sector side, there's so much we can do as well. Um, I think that, you know, I, I love your approach to this. You know, you are doing uh, a real estate business with a twist uh, and marketing it as something that you can really make an impact to improving your community and, impl- and improving the world. Um, and Ethan, I just want to say that that is a really, first of all, creative way of, of marketing your business. But also, I think it's a really important um, window into how businesses should think in the future. Because our world, as much as self-interest is important in, in business, um, it's also still important to think about how your business affects people. And, and, to, and to know that you're involved in, in work that is, you know, trying to open the dialogue and discussion and, and bring more attention and funding to nonprofit organizations focused on, on the environment, you know, kudos to you. You know, uh, it's not just me. It's also people like you. So I appreciate being on this podcast and talking to you, man. Carlos, thanks, bro. And um, you've, you've opened my eyes to so many different things. And that's what I love about this show is I love hearing different people's perspective. I want to get everyone's voices involved. And then at the end of the day, I truly believe that discourse leads to the truth and we can figure out exactly how to take action. And that's the point of this whole show. So it's been a pleasure, man. Thanks so Ooh, much. For if coming there's on. one more thing I can say. Plenty of time. No rush. One more thing I can say here is, uh, you know, I know that there is a significant debate in the environmental community 
and even amongst people who aren't necessarily that involved in the environmental community about what is the individual responsibility to climate change? And is this something that is, you know, is, is corporate, are corporations the ones responsible for this and fixing it? Is it the government? Is it just individuals? What is the right way to do this? Why is it not all three? And that is my personal opinion. I'm not speaking for Asul on that. I'm saying my personal opinion is that uh, this issue and this crisis is so important that we need all actors involved. And the degree to which which actor is responsible for what, that is what's up for debate. But I don't think that it's a cop-out for saying that you, for example, as an individual, don't have a responsibility to recycle or don't have a responsibility to buy products and services that are, um, you know, not conscious of the environment. Um, you know, there's a lot of people our age who are, let's say, you know, uh, uh, buying cars. You know, if you have the money, consider buying an electric vehicle um, or consider taking public transit more often. Um, so I think that there's a lot more that individuals can do um, to help out in this effort, not just holding corporations accountable and pressuring the government to take more action. There's also things we can do as individuals. Yeah, man. All three. Dedic- uh, you, you spelled it all out today. And I appreciate you ending with that because that's just so, so true. As Anything I've learned from this show, it's that we are, it's all of us. We all need to do it. And I think the key is, is to find what you enjoy doing and then work on climate action through that. You're working in politics and the nonprofit space. I'm working in business and the nonprofit space. Um, and I'm also like thinking about like getting a bidet and not using toilet paper anymore. And you know, like it's, if, if it needs to get done and we're going to do it, man. So thank you so much. It's thank been, so it's been much, a real Ethan. pleasure. All right, everybody. And we'll see you next time. Peace out. Thank you so much for tuning in to another episode of Changing the Climate. Here at Climate Change Realty, we don't just donate 50% of our net commissions to fight climate change. We also donate a full 50% of our real estate referrals. So if you or anyone else you know is looking to buy or sell a home anywhere in the USA and would like to create thousands of dollars in donations without any cost out of pocket, please visit ccrboulder.com today.